0: Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Bala Musitz, coming to you from the Capital Region Campus of Clarkson University in Schenectady, New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at Clarkson University.
1: And coming to you from beautiful Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. First, we want to thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy listening to our podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Second, uh, several of you always ask me, why the heck are we doing this? And I answer it certainly not to make money. Uh, But I do like to point out that both Bela and I like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world is changing and particularly how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've each learned over three-plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've decided to put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with others we've recently met along the way. And we'd like to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life.
0: Before we get today's guest... A quick thank you to our sponsors, Clarkson University
1: and the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Bela, we received a very thoughtful email uh, from a listener, Sean. He had some very nice comments regarding the podcast and some suggestions, which we're always glad to hear. And I thought it might be cool if I read a little bit of Sean's email. Sean says, hi, Bela and Mike. I've really enjoyed the podcast as it grows and matures. Thank you for making it. Some comments, minicasts. Like many, I've oversubscribed to lengthy podcasts, and your short 10-minute reflections are a great relief that still provide meaningful insights. It might be worth using these as callbacks or check-ins with past interviewees to see where they are now and what recent challenges they've encountered. Second, cocktail questions. Starting the interview, uh, allowing the interview to describe themselves casually sets the tone and frames themselves, which is great because the journey they are all on is so very personal. Uh, Sean pointed out the podcast with Mark Campo and President Collins as two that he really enjoyed. He said, Tony's strategic vision and Mark's personal reflections were treats that brought to life perspectives and understandings that were previously unknown. Uh, Sean thirdly pointed out, he liked the book and podcast recommendations and our personal reflections. He said, learning more about the podcasters is a significant driver of engagement and interest by a podcast listener. It might even be worth marking significant milestones with self-interviews of each other focused on specific sections of your careers and how they impact you today. Baylor, we were just talking about that, weren't we?
0: Yeah, we were. We were thinking of doing a podcast where we uh, interview each other.
1: I think so. uh, Sean, this is a good idea. We'll we'll jump on this. And then Sean concludes, uh, the podcast has caused me to reflect on my own relationships and realize I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs. But in deeper reflection, I imagine we're all surrounded by people that challenge, inspire, and push the understanding of what work means. That was a wonderful email. Thank you, Sean.
0: Yeah, hey, you know, we really appreciate getting emails like that. And uh, Sean's was especially uh, thoughtful and uh, had some great suggestions. So those of you uh, who might have some thoughts and some suggestions, uh, please feel free to reach out and email us. And uh, we really like getting those, and they help us improve the podcast. It's always good to hear what our listeners are thinking. And hey, Mike, you want to tell folks what our email address is?
1: Bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And remember, Bela is B-E-L-A and Mike is M-I-K-E. Bela.and.mike at gmail.com. You got it? Good. Excellent. It. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we look forward to hearing from you. So today's guest is Nick Petros. He has an interesting background from a, as a competitive sailor, musician, and entrepreneur. And I think uh, in my this conversation with him, he shares some of that journey that he's been on and how he's learned from each element of it. His company, Pinchforth, helps other companies connect with and grow their customer base. Hey, Mike, what caught your ear during the interview with Nick?
1: Well, this was cool. I mean, a an interesting person with an interesting path, and I love how he kind of started and did that time was working for what his uncle's uh, air conditioning firm, right? Just doing being a laborer and really, you know, I I, I always think it's cool when people start by doing jobs that require common sense and hard work um, and even though you went to college doesn't mean that you can't uh, or you shouldn't get your get your roll roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty so I have a ton of respect for that path uh, and I think it's underappreciated and, and cool uh, second I really think it's neat how he used some of his failures early on and turn them into positives in his career and he's kind of like a meta entrepreneur in the fact that he helps he's an entrepreneur that helps other entrepreneurs be more entrepreneurial and be more successful at that. So I thought that's kind of a neat way to take your life lessons and turn it into ways that can give back. Obviously it's it's lucrative for him um, but it's rewarding like you said, he thinks he's got the best job in the world and I'll argue that I have the best job of the world, but that's a great argument to have. Um, but yeah, but he's doing things that help people, which I think is is really cool. So yeah, I thought it was great.
0: Yeah, I agree, Mike. So uh, let's uh, jump right into the interview with uh, Nick Petros. Hi, folks. Bela here. Today, I'm here with Nick Petros, a real interesting entrepreneur who has uh, started a company and has a very intriguing background uh, that we'll talk uh, to him about. And so welcome, all of our listeners. And I hope you enjoy this uh, interview and conversation with Nick. So welcome, Nick
2: welcome excited to be here
0: so nick uh let me ask you a question if you're at a networking event uh which all entrepreneurs go to uh so if you're at a networking event and you walk up and you shake someone's hand how do you introduce yourself what do you say that you do
2: sure i I say i help folks figure out how to uh, grow their business um and scale customer or user adoption um so that's, that's through a couple of different things. I have a, a couple of businesses going simultaneously now, but um, that's usually my intro, and I try to figure out what they're working on as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. So when, when they say, okay, well, what do you mean by that, Nick? What do you mean by help me grow my business?
2: Yeah, sure. So I play in the technology space. My, my focus is primarily consumer-facing tech or business-to-business tech. Um, and everyone's looking for a way to reach more people, um, onboard more customers, uh, if you're consumer-facing, onboard more users, um, you know, drive adoption and retention, that sort of thing. Um, so, so scale in the technology space um, is anything you need to do uh, to drive like regular increases, um, you know, amongst the the key performance indicators across those um, those metrics. Uh, so that's what I do to help. That's uh, that's where I play, and and that's what I mean by growth.
0: Got it. Got it. So, what's your typical customer look like, Nick?
2: Uh, they're all over the place. Um, so if, if if you were to ask the other question, uh, you know, how do you like your job? I think I have the coolest job in the world um, because, one, I, I get to build new things, but, two, I get to work on a variety of things with some really, really incredible people. Uh, so I have consumer-facing products that I'm working on, um, some that are just peer-to-peer, um, new ways for uh, end consumers to share information amongst each other. Uh, I have products in the financial space, I'm trying to revolutionize the banking sphere. Uh, I have physical products, uh, athletic wear products, uh, all, all different types of things delivered through technology. Um, so I get to solve a myriad of different problems every day and week, and um, and learn a lot in the process.
0: Wow! So I know this question will be like you know asking someone who their favorite child is, uh, but can you? can you give us a more specific example of one of these products or services that you have
2: yeah yeah for sure so I've um, I have a really cool product in the banking sphere I don't don't want to name them so we don't know that I'm behind part of it but um, they, they figured out a way to, to make banking exciting um, and w- what does that mean right everyone knows you know checking fees uh, rewards points um, free ATMs like the, the generic bullet points that banks use to, to drive adoption but these guys actually built uh, an entire engagement platform on top of the banking sphere um, to make it practical to certain family activities. Um, so So instead of thinking about your bank as a place to just store your money and, and have it when you need it, uh, these guys created an awesome like interface uh, that turns your your bank uh, effectively into a, a way to communicate like different tasks uh, inside of your own household. Uh, so you know, it, it brings something that's sort of obscure and, and not exciting into a very exciting sphere. Uh, That's practical to nearly every consumer that's a family. Uh, Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what what you described to me, I I was thinking about it as you were saying it, is that I'm really engaged now with that bank. Right. It's, it's much more previously it's sort of a transactional relationship. Yeah. Uh, but now what you're talking about is we're sort of partners uh, in, in this. You've, I've invited the bank into my home.
2: Yeah. There's, there's a new way to use them. There's a new reason to use them. Um, and it's cool. I mean, it's an exciting product. It's a huge space. But, um, you know, what we're talking about now, like this, this is really growth. This is the sort of thing that. That I get to do every day, like figure out a way to get customers to engage, just like we're talking about with banks, um, with with all the products that we work on. So it's it's more than just a transactional relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So uh, how how old is this uh, company, Pinchfork? Sure. So started in uh, in November of 2017. So what are we like a year and a half now?
0: Yeah, yeah. Very nice. So uh, let's let's uh, take a step back. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got here. Uh, so where did you grow up?
2: Sure, I grew up in Narragansett, Rhode Island, uh, on the bay.
0: Yeah. Wow. My uh, my son lives in Barrington.
2: There you go. Other end of the state, but it's a it's a quick drive because it's Rhode Island. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Very nice. Uh, and uh, what about your parents? Uh, were they entrepreneurs or?
2: uh no no my father's in professional services uh my my grandfather was an entrepreneur he um uh he got uh air conditioning company started um in the 50s actually um and grew it into a pretty substantial business that my uncle now runs today um ironically that was actually my first job out of school i wanted to work as a a copywriter but didn't have the book of business for the creative background to land a job there yes um so i wound up working for him as a laborer for six months which was great experience
0: yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, so uh, high school, uh, what did you study, like pre-college stuff? or what were, Tell me a little bit about your educational background.
2: Sure. So generic pre-college stuff, I mean, we can actually step back a little earlier. Um, I got involved in robotics at a pretty young age. Um, fifth grade, my teacher was involved in a, a program out of MIT um, that was actually working on the beta for what's now the, the Lego Mindstorms program. Um, so okay. if, if you're familiar with Legos or these like cool computer um, devices that can actually like power uh, different motors and sensors um, yes. on uh, on like mini robots that you can make with their kits, so I was working on like the MIT beta beta version of that um, before it was publicly released by uh, by Lego, and we were kind of like a, a test pool there, um, and that that's kind of where the whole entrepreneurship thing got started. We built um, a pretty compelling robot. His name was Sammy the Salamander. Uh, it was on national television because we figured out how to program it to follow a track and go hide in its cave and open its mouth and um, do all kinds of things that 10-year-olds weren't expected to be able to make robots do. Um, and that uh, you know, opened my eyes to the possibility of building something new, uh, which has been kind of the mission ever since.
0: Yeah, wow. That sounds like it was really uh, quite the experience.
2: Yeah, it was a great learning experience. It was awesome to see that, um, you know, even though there aren't rule books for certain things, you can still forge a way ahead. Right, right. Uh,
0: now, and then what uh, what transpired after that?
2: Sure. So, you know, that's sort of begun the quest to build something awesome. Um, I'm sure not, not all that dissimilar from from your background. You just, a couple exits ahead of me at this point. Um after uh, after robotics getting into high school um a couple friends spent like a year and a half working on an alternative um energy project um trying to figure out a way to convert uh combustion engines into electric um mm-hmm. we thought we had a pretty compelling idea uh, we actually tried to raise money for it too from family and friends but no one believed we could do it so that didn't ever get off the ground um then in school and college um Focus shifted to music. I've been playing music since I was three or four years old. Um, so we pulled a band together uh, and also tried to turn that into a business. Like reached out to record labels like everyone else. Um, there was some interest, but that didn't get off the ground. Uh, out of school, as I mentioned, I worked as a laborer while I was trying to get jobs um, with, with creative companies up in Boston. Um, and eventually landed a gig with, um, with an e-commerce company um up here. They were launching a daily deal site. Uh, this is back in two thousand ten when mm-hmm. Groupon wasn't widely known. Um so I was employee number four on that deal site project. Um one upgrade pulled over to the the growth and digital marketing side of things and um stood up a, a multi million dollar revenue channel in like eight months um and helped that company exit. So then I finally kinda saw the light. Uh, and uh and I've been doing it ever since.
0: Yeah. Wow. So let me go back to the uh, that internal combustion engine one that you didn't raise money for. <laughs> yeah. And then the band, the band that <laughs> you couldn't you didn't you didn't get signed. for. <laughs> so I always like to explore sort of what things do we learn from those experiences?
2: Yeah. Um, so a couple of things, I think, with the with the, the engine, for example, um, the logic all made sense. The designs made sense. Um one of the guys who was who supporting the infrastructure um, is now in Seattle um working on ultra capacitors, um like rapid release uh, electronic storage devices. Um so he's actually in the space and validated a lot of the ideas that we had. Um but the big the big hurdle there was access to capital. Um if you don't have some money to put the idea together, uh which we didn't as high school kids. Um there's, there's no way to really validate the concept um, and, and transparently I've, I've carried that into basically everything else that we've done um, you know whether it was the band or, or the startups we've worked on since then um, you know finding a way to validate ideas even like with a small amount of capital uh, has, has helped them grow a lot faster and, and figure out if they're viable a little faster
0: right right so that's sort of the notion of you know minimum viable product or kind of lean startup right
2: yeah yep yeah. Just need some kind of nudge to turn that into more than just an idea or a vision.
0: Yeah. And then that nudge is also oftentimes helpful to raise capital. Yep. Because it, it gives the potential investors a little more confidence that what you have is real or it's going to work or there's market interest.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's honestly, that's a lot of what we do today at, uh, at Pinchforth. Folks come to us with amazing ideas and, um, you know, they don't necessarily have access to capital, but. Um, usually, there are a couple little nuggets they can go after for five hundred or a thousand bucks. Um, it build up a wait list, prove the consumers will adopt your idea, um, or even like, you know, onboard one beta customer at the idea level. Um, you know, just to approach investors with more than just "I think this will work."
0: Right, right. And I, I think that's a really, really important concept that uh, more and more people are uh, beginning to understand. And you know with with certain in- businesses that you're going to start um they require a lot of capital they're just capital intensive to kind of get going mm-hmm. so you got to figure out a way of sort of helping reduce the risk for the potential investor by even if it's just one customer or it's a breadboard design or whatever uh something that sort of demonstrates that uh you got something that's valuable
2: yeah, yeah, well, it's really um fascinating, so I was just up in um in Toronto at a really big Tech conference. Um, what's what's fascinating? Folks are building things so quickly these days um, that some of them I must have talked to a handful of early stage companies um, that don't have enough to get an MVP out the door, um, but they have enough experience, um, you know, and, and background in their particular area. You know, artificial intelligence being a huge one um, to actually onboard beta customers to help um, and actually fund their MVP that way. So these guys are. Um, coming into fundraising conversations with a revenue stream and a minimal viable product um, and the customer base, which is super exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. So uh, Pinchforth, so uh, what does that mean? That sounds like a, a a name of a company that has some deeper meaning to it.
2: Yeah, um, so there's a little story behind it. Um, the, the, the last company I was at full-time was called RallyPoint um it's a vertical network for service members and veterans of the u.s military um and that was a really really wild experience um i came on board when they had like uh like 150,000 users uh, they spent a couple million bucks building the product and, and getting it out the door but um they didn't have a really stable repeatable way to grow super quick um and so that's what what i came in to help them do and um we We blew that up. It's like the largest and fastest growing military network in the world today. Um we grew it super fast, acquired a massive percentage of the active military, and you know now it's shifted to to veterans primarily. Um, and we did all of it without any brand work. Um, like we never really, really focused on you know developing the key brand tenants, uh, explaining the name, uh, you know going public in a big way with with a refined identity. So the joke always became like, hey, we have access to the top of our industry, um, but you know, no one really knows how to explain the brand in one sentence. You know, we have million users, millions of users on the site, um, and no one can really explain it in a coin level. Like It's still creating value, even though the brand isn't solidified. Um, so when I started consulting, I wanted to come up with a name that you know, was you know, provocative enough to never actually take off. Um, at a mm-hmm. brand level, and that's that's where pinch forth kind of came from. It's um, it's a combination of a sailing tactic called pinching, um, you know, and and force, like go forward, grow faster.
0: Right, right. So, are you a sailor?
2: Um, yeah, yeah. I was a pretty competitive sailor in high school. Uh, I've been meaning to get back into it since post grad, but it's been all work.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, did you? Uh, it was mainly sailing competitively.
2: Uh, yeah, a lot of fleet racing, tons of team racing in high school, uh, a lot of fleet racing over the summers.
0: Oh, okay. On Narragansett Bay mostly? Yeah.
2: It's a great place to sail, a lot of wind, um, a lot of space. You sail too, right?
0: I do. I do. So, uh, I've been, uh, at not the competitive level, but at the sort of, uh, recreational cruising, uh, uh, piece and, uh. My big trips were last summer. I helped a friend. A friend of mine bought a sailboat who had never sailed before and didn't know anything about sailing. Uh. And uh, he bought it in Florida and wanted to get it up to uh, Newport. So last summer, he and I, sa- he, I, him, him and I, and his son, sailed it from Fort Lauderdale up to Annapolis, where he had some work done on it this past winter. And uh, several weeks ago. Uh, brought the boat from Annapolis up to Newport, so that was uh, kind of my big uh, "quote-unquote" ocean experience. Although to real ocean sailors, they would not consider that to be an ocean experience. I mean, but w- when I can't see land, I'm in the middle of the ocean, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Still, that's a that's a substantial trip. I mean, how how long did it take to get to Annapolis?
0: Um, uh, so uh, Fort Lauderdale to Annapolis was a about uh, eight or nine days, if I remember correctly, uh, we did some of it on the ICW, the intercoastal waterway, mm-hmm. which is a canal that basically goes from Florida all the way to um, Virginia. And um, we did uh, we did a, a total of three overnights out in the middle of uh, not in the middle, you know, off off offshore. We did one 48-hour stint and uh, one, uh, one 24-hour stint.
2: And you were so, under sail the whole way or, or power? Uh,
0: uh, in the When you're coming up the ICW, you're powering Got for it. the most part. There's a couple of places in the ICW that open up into bigger bodies of water that you can sail on. And uh, when we were offshore, uh, we were doing some sailing and some motoring. Um just because we didn't have enough wind. But, uh, yeah, it was great. I I really enjoyed it. And this past uh, couple weeks ago, I saw my first whale, which was really exciting. Uh, A classic uh, image that you see on TV all the time of a whale coming up out of the water and, you know, slamming down on its belly. Wow. And uh, it was probably 50 yards from the boat. Super close. Which,
2: yeah, it was like, holy cow, that (laughs) whale is big. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and they, I mean, uh, anyway. they don't mind. You're not making a lot of noise. They don't mind.
0: Right, right. So you'll have to you have to go cruising sometime. I uh, I really enjoy it.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful sport. I, I think um, you know, tying it back to growth, it's it's um, one of the few things where you know when when you're underway, you can actually um, you know how you can look at the water and, and see where mm-hmm. the wind changes you know weight or direction a little bit. Right. Um, and then if, if you happen to maneuver your boat into that, you know, usually it's a gray patch or dark patch, um, it's like immediately realized benefit. And the second your sails touch that wind, you feel a difference, you move faster, you change direction. Um, it's one of the few things where there's like immediate gratification for the right decisions, um, right. which is a lot of right. fun.
0: Yeah. You know, I, as you're saying that, I, I never thought of sailing this way, but it, it you you got to plan what you're doing. You got to manage your resources, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you you got to be ready for the unexpected mm-hmm. uh, because you never know what's going to happen. So in many ways, it is uh, it has some analogies or parallels to you know starting a business and and having limited resources. You got to figure out how you're going to live on what you have on the boat for the next ten days and. Um, you know, if a storm comes up, well, a storm comes up and you got to figure out how to deal with it. So,
2: yeah, yeah. With that, with a racing scenario, so it's, it's almost, um, you know, even closer in, in a racing scenario, uh, fleet racing in particular, you're, you're all starting like gunning for the windward mark in most cases. Um, and you have exactly the same resources as another like 60 to a hundred boats. Um, so exact right. same resources, same distance. Um, it's up to you to make the right decisions with the time you have. Um, you know, try to eke out a little bit of an advantage, um, right. which I feel like is the startup run.
0: Yeah, you you really in that kind of competitive sailing, you're you're really adding that competitive piece of business to it. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. So uh, where'd you where'd you go to? Uh, did you go to college and where?
2: Yeah, I went to Hobart, so uh, upstate, not not too far from you.
0: Yeah. And what was what's your major in there, Nick?
2: Uh, I studied social science and Spanish.
0: Oh, okay, Excellent. Excellent. And then uh, after college, what did you do?
2: Yeah, so I got um I got that job as a laborer for my uncle for six months where I just interviewed like crazy. I um, know then wound up working for that uh, e-commerce company, um, you know, switched from sales to to growth, um, stood up a big revenue channel, helped him exit. Um, and I've been doing the the venture back startup thing ever since.
0: Yeah. Now, did did you uh, consider at all joining a larger company right after school?
2: Uh, I thought about it. I was looking at ad agencies, but uh, you know, I, I graduated in '09 and didn't have much of a resume. Uh, mm. You know, just a couple internships. Um, you know, not a lot of ambition. So sales seemed to be the easiest fit, and uh, that's where I got in first.
0: Right. Right. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, so you said uh, these were venture backed, a couple of the things that you've done. So talk to us a little bit about that experience, the experience of kind of raising money from venture capitalists or, you know, not friends and family, but kind of professional investors. Yeah.
2: So it's, I mean, it's about different milestones. Um, You know, it's just like anything else you do, the more you do it, the better you get at it. um, you know, part of the beauty of what I get to do at, at Pinchforth is, I mean, I, I really get to work with some of the most talented people in, in Boston, um, you know, some unbelievable fundraisers. And you can almost actually, like, plan your fundraising round um, around the goal set um, that you think you're able to achieve, uh, you know, in the timeline you think you can hit, um, which which makes things a lot easier. You come in with a data set that works. But um, it's a variety. So that that first company, I was not really involved at all. I was actually powering the uh, the revenue curve, um, and my you know my boss showed me the uh, the deck that the, that helped support the acquisition of the company, and um, you know the curve mapped almost directly to what I was responsible for. Um, so that was my my first exposure to it. Uh, then I moved to a payment tech company, um, which was which was much more focused. I, um, helped put together a growth plan. Um, helped validate acquisition costs. Um, you know, figured out how to tie like lifetime value of an expected customer to uh, you know projected value of the business. Um, you know, how to position all that. Uh, you know, to make it attractive, make it believable and attractive um, to investors. Uh, which only escalated when we got to rally point. Uh, you know, helping folks map a growth path that is attractive to investors. And um, you know, then beyond just this past year, we helped. Um, Three companies raised four million bucks at the pre-seed stage, um, just by putting together a compelling, believable growth story.
0: You know that's really interesting. You you use the word believable uh, because in in my entrepreneurship class, uh, one of the one of the exercises we do is all around uh, making it, it believable, and. Um, you know, people, everyone knows that, that your business plan or your deck, that's not what's going to happen, but potential investors just have to believe that it can happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sometimes I think entrepreneurs or people who are pitching, uh, VCs, uh, lose sight of that fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, 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 they start talking about, well, we're going to be a $3 billion a year business, you know, in 19 months, et cetera. And you just took all the believability out of it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh uh so you you know you you got to you got to walk that tightrope um of of growing fast and growing big and making it attractive to a venture investor but at the same time uh you got to make it believable so i'm a i'm a firm now this is going to sound like a real bad pun i'm a firm believer yeah. in making it believable
2: yeah yeah Yeah. Well, i think um yeah i i think for a lot of the the super early stage um founders that that we talk to um there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to raising capital, so it's it's easier or more comfortable um, to fall into the logical argument that uh, if this investment means access to a you know multi-trillion dollar market, um, then I'm going to attract the most investors that way. Uh, but I mean, I, I think to what you're saying, like in, investors want to bet on something that could come to life. Uh, That's right. You know, playing the odds, uh, one out of every ten actually hitting. Like you want to. Put those ten investments into the companies most likely to hit in some capacity, not necessarily right. the biggest.
0: Now, do you do most of your work with uh, relatively young startup businesses, Nick?
2: Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say like eighty percent um, with with young businesses. Twenty percent um, working with with older businesses that you know know that there's more they can be doing, uh, but haven't been in that growth stage in a couple years, so they're trying to diversify and um, you know lean on the startup guy to help them. Uh, you know, figure out a new way to break through and, and hit that next level.
0: Right, right. So talk to me about what a typical engagement is like with with one of these folks.
2: Um, so that's also the beauty of the the job I get to have. They're all completely different. Um, the one similarity, the one anchor point is there's always a specific problem. Um, so that, like a professional services company, for example, um, you know, maybe maybe the average customer is worth 40 or 50 thousand dollars and, um, they want to figure out a way to onboard more of them. Uh, you know, and this is something I'm actually seeing, I and mean, you've probably seen with, with your companies, uh, but I'm, I'm seeing very, very uh, frequently these days, um, you know, folks know how to acquire leads, they know how to turn them into business. Um, you know, with, uh, with the larger companies, that's a bigger problem. Like, how do we convert, um, you know, in inbound demand and actual leads into, into something meaningful, um, you know, faster without just hiring more people? Uh, to qualify those. So, you know, to give you the spectrum of what an engagement looks like, and on one case, I'll work with with a large team of, you know, qualifiers, appointment setters, and sales folks and um, turning that inbound volume into, like, measurable business. Uh, on the other hand, I'll, I'll work with a really small team of, you know, one to three uh, early stage founders uh, and to validate their concept, uh, you know, and get it to a level that, that supports their next capital raise. Uh, so it's, it's really a gamut. They just... It depends on the goal. and um, We employ whatever we can to achieve the goal as efficiently as possible.
0: Right, right. So uh, what criteria do you use to decide whether you're going to work with a company or not?
2: Sure. Um, so it ties back into your investment criteria. Uh, believability. Um, you know, I think there are lots of people with amazing ideas. Um, and it's, it's really easy to get caught up in. Uh, you know what the ideas could be, um, but few folks who can actually see a path to bringing those to light. Um, so if, if, if the founder, like, you know, can see the next stage of a business uh, or the first stage of the business, if if they're just getting it off the ground um, in a way that makes sense, um, you know, in a way that's practical and realistic, um, you know, then there's, you know, almost no reason not to engage uh, because we can practically find a solution um, you know, on the flip side, I think there's a lot of folks and, you know, part of my growing pains last year was working with too many of these, um, who, who think that just because the idea is good, it's going to grow really fast. Um, which is never the case. Um, you know, people look at, look at Facebook or watch the movie, um, the, you know, the social network and, and think that if you make the right idea, a billion people are going to use it at the end of the year. Um. But those are accidents. Uh, you know, Those things don't really happen often. The, the companies that grow really big are methodical. They test quickly and efficiently. Uh, you know, They believe in data. They follow data. Uh, and they have a system uh, in place to react to thousands of data points quickly um, to get them there. Uh, so folks who know that and understand the work required, uh, you know, I can see a realistic path, um, are awesome guys to work with. I wind up learning the most from them.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about data for a little bit. Do you, do you help companies sort through that and figure out what to do with the data? You know, these days it's so easy to collect so much data. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I see uh, oftentimes uh, uh, companies uh, submerge themselves or sync themselves with, you know, just so much data. And um, how do you, how do you help companies do that? Or is that really outside of your space?
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we help those measure. I think um, that's, Particularly in the in the venture space, that's a uh, a big question. Everyone wants to know what are the right metrics to report on. Um, you know, furthermore, are these good or are these bad? Um, and I'll I'll give you a practical example. In, in the social space, um, you know, everyone used to go on like monthly active users um, until Facebook got so big that there were you know over a billion people on every single day, and then they shifted to daily. Um, You know, but the definitions, like Facebook's definition of an active user uh, was wildly different from LinkedIn's. Um, You know, to be an active user on LinkedIn, you only need to log in to the LinkedIn widget. Um, To be an active user on Facebook, you actually have to, you know, hit the app or the Facebook page and platform. Um, So helping helping companies understand, uh, like, what metrics are right for them is a big part of what we do. Uh, Because usually we're responsible for driving growth against those metrics. Uh, you know, for some it's not active user. For some it's uh, you know volume of, of cash processed. For some it's revenue. Uh, for for many it's ultimately revenue. Uh, but helping folks pick the right metrics and make sure they're they're measuring them appropriately is a big part of what we do.
0: So, what uh, what metrics do you use to help them pick the right metrics?
2: Uh, it depends on the business. Um, I think for for B 2 C. Um, you know, in our really, really early stage company, um, it's all about your cost for acquisition. If there is any cost for acquisition, um, uh, you know, ultimately like a consumer facing company in, in the technology space, your, your value is your audience. Um, so you need to find a way to prove to investors that you can acquire a really valuable audience with, um, little to no money. Uh, you know, so that's, you know, in, in that case, like any anything that indicates user uh, user interest or demand, um, or uh, or indicates barrier to entry, um, is a is a core metric for us. Uh, you know, this is where all the standard digital advertising metrics come into play, like your your click through rate, uh, your cost per acquisition, your cost per thousand impressions. Um, you know, we don't use those to actually buy media; we use them to measure demand, uh, which is an interesting hack. Instead of using a, a a focus group where you'll spend ten to fifteen thousand uh, dollars to have a company, you know, run a, in a closed and controlled environment a series of questions by potential customers. Um, we'll spend like thirty bucks, uh, you know, on, on Facebook or Instagram or Google um, to serve a few thousand impressions to people in in the target market and just see how they respond. Uh, you know, and use their actual response rates to those advertisements as uh, you know as our indicators. So again, it it changes by business. Like the professional service companies are going off a totally different data set. You know, it's it's quality and value per customer. Um, but um, you know, whatever whatever makes the most sense uh, for the viability of that business seems to be where we go.
0: Right, right. Well, that that that's very interesting, uh, the way you guys do that, and the beauty of of these digital advertising. Uh, Platforms uh, or outlets, I should say, is that for thirty bucks you can do, do these tests really cheap, which thirty years ago cost you you know three thousand dollars to do it, if not more. Yeah.
2: What's extra bizarre? So this is, I mean, this is super exciting, but uh, what's bizarre is it's it's getting so cheap, and the race to the bottom has become so fast that um, platforms that actually syndicate content are beginning to you know outpace advertisers in terms of reach. Um, so you're going to start, I mean, we're going to see a lot more of this in the next year or two, but you're going to start seeing companies abandon, um, you know, paid digital advertising almost altogether, uh, because it's more efficient to just package and syndicate like really valuable content, um, you know, and put money into creating that content, um, instead of actually publishing it and pushing it to reach.
0: Right. Right. So, uh, so what's next for you guys? What do you see on the horizon?
2: Um, so a lot of focus is right there um, you know helping understand this content game it's actually not a big part of what we do um, I'm not much of a writer the guys in the team are amazing writers but uh, we tend to, to focus the work on um, you know framing um, content or experiences uh, for the optimal response so figuring out this this content ecosystem is a is a really big focus um, we have I'll, I'll tell you we have one super stealth stage uh, project in New York. Um, you know, this is one of those pie in the sky, uh, could change the world type things, but what they're actually doing, uh, is trying to revolutionize the e-commerce space, you know, so buying products online, like you would through, uh, a Shopify store, or Amazon or eBay. Um, you know, they're, they're building technology that allow, uh, digital, like commerce transactions to take place on any digital touch point or property. Um, so retailers and brands, small or large, aren't beholden to these big uh, you know massive tech companies. Uh, that make their hay by controlling volume, controlling traffic and restricting access to consumers. Um, so pushing hard to sort of democratize access to digital commerce, um, you know and then and then figure out what this uh, this change in content marketing is gonna mean for uh, early stage companies that are trying to grow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds really cool. And, and do you see yourself, uh, continuing to, to be entrepreneurial and, and do these types of things? Is, is that what, as you look into your own crystal ball, your personal crystal ball, what do you see?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, so you mentioned, you mentioned networking, um, earlier, something all entrepreneurs do. I think, um, you know, I've been super lucky. I've gotten to, you know, meet and work with really, really incredible folks. Um, you know, learn a ton from them and, Um, I found that if you just, you know, reach out, I I make a goal of reaching out to five or six new folks every week, actually having conversations with them. Um, You know, the the people you meet tend to, you know, change your life in one way or another. So, um, you know, continuing with that, trying to work with as many people as I can, um, learn as much as I can, uh, is certainly in focus because, you know, there's so many ideas going around. Uh, Anything I can attach myself to and, uh, and help grow, I try to.
0: Yeah, that that sounds great. You know, uh, you brought up networking there and how important that is. Um, if I reflect back on on my career, I think I've had somewhere between 12 to 13 different jobs. And during that period of time, I've answered a lot of classified job ads, you know, both uh, in print and digital and only once did I actually end up getting a job through responding to an ad? Hmm. All of all of the other uh, jobs that I've gotten was because I had some type of connection or link into that organization. Um, And, you know, so that to me is a real demonstration, at least for me of the value of networking and reaching out and, and knowing people. Um, And you don't, you don't, you know, you don't have to go out to dinner with them three times a week. Uh, but just establish some kind of relationship and, uh, people love to help other people and don't be bashful about reaching out and give them a call and say, Hey, you know, I'm looking around to do something else. You know, do you have any suggestions? And, uh, certainly for me, it's been a, a huge part of, of my, uh, of my life. And it's something that I look at very seriously, and I try to always help people, you know, uh, navigate their way through uh, their various different career decisions that they make. So yeah. that's great advice. Nate. Well,
2: even, you know, outside more, more advice to extract from you, um, you know, I think, I think what a, a lot of early stage founders don't know is is how much you still depend on um, your network and, and your trusted relationships at the top of the companies uh, that you wind up running. And, I, you know, no experience better than yours as CEO, president. I imagine you still leaned on your network pretty heavily, uh, you know, to form new relationships, new business opportunities and, uh, you know, and drive value. It didn't stop right at the, um, at job seeking, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was trying to bring it home real personal to folks, but you're absolutely right. It covers all aspects of – actually, it covers all aspects of life when you get down to it. Yeah. Uh, right? It's not just – it's not just your – your, your professional career. It's not just your current position or what you're doing as a president or a CEO or a founder or whatever, whatever your particular position. It's, it's also true in your personal relationships. You know, it's, it's like, uh, meeting people and engaging with people is I think a core fundamental value that crosses all aspects of life. Yeah. And, and if you're good at it, uh, boy does it pay it pays good dividends it brings you great returns and i think you also then have an obligation to pay it forward right to 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 keep engaged uh and to help others as well as as they're they're trying to navigate that morass
2: yeah so I have, if uh if if you'd permit me i have a, a little secret project i'd love to share with you yeah sure so i mean it's it's dead in this vein but um you know i was super, super introverted, Um, you know, even all the way through college. i probably into my first job. Um, You know, I didn't understand what networking meant and was afraid to approach folks, Um, you know, versus today where, you know, every opportunity I have to help somebody by connecting them to one of the good folks I know I try to take. Um, But I think as as an introvert um, or someone who's just not familiar with, um, you know, the access they could have or the value they could offer someone, it's um, it's really hard to take that first step, you know, even just going to an event. what am I gonna say? what am I doing? How do I right. introduce myself? um so this has been um you know I've been working on this for a couple of years uh, with a co-founder down in Florida, but um we literally just launched the alpha of a product called Breezler uh, up at that conference in Toronto um and what it does it's an algorithm uh, that we wrote that understands the strength of your relationships um so you don't have to. Um, and it keeps track of the top 20 folks that you're in touch with, uh, basically creating a trust score. Um, so for someone who's introverted and you know wants to network but doesn't really know what value they offer, or how to position themselves, they don't have to come up with a catchphrase. They don't have to do any of that selling. Um, the app and the technology we built will actually make you valuable by showcasing the relationships you could offer someone else access to. Um, so I, Nick, am... Uh, not necessarily valuable because of the, the growth work I can do. I'm valuable because I know Bob, and Bob could be helpful to you in, in this respect. Uh, basically, we build tech that does all that for you.
0: Oh, wow. And so you guys just launched this and in, invaded? did you say? Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm calling it an alpha because it's, it's very messy. Okay. But um, it's, it's live uh, on the Apple Store and on Google Play um you know mm-hmm. it it does work uh for gmail and microsoft the emails uh you have to authenticate with email because we can't make connections for folks you don't actually know um but um it's patented it's uh it's out there and and we're working hard to validate it and market establish some traction and and turn it into a real company
0: yeah and what was the name of it again Nick?
2: so Breizler, breezler b r e e z l e r okay Yeah. I just thought it relevant. We were talking about networking and the power of relationships. I think um, that's probably the biggest impediment to you know, all the big ideas I come across, probably some that you come across, too. Uh, yeah. You know, folks have amazing ideas, amazing intent, and willpower. They just they don't have access to the people they need to get their ideas to the next level. So yeah. if we could help that, See, I, you know,
0: I, I think of I think of networking and many of these things as as their learned skills. Yeah. Uh, for for some people, it's easier to learn than others, right? Yeah. Some people are are natural at it. It's like learning music. Uh, for some people, it's a real ease, and for other people, it's you know who are tone deaf like myself, it's really difficult. <laughs> but but it's still you can you do the ten thousand hours thing and you can get pretty good, and and I think networking is also sort of a learned skill. Yeah. For some people, it's very natural, but for others. You got to work at it. And I, you know, I, look, I, I went to an engineering school, so I don't, I don't, you know, you know the difference between an introverted and an extroverted engineer, don't you? <laughs> no, what's the difference? The, the extroverted engineer looks at your shoes while he's talking. To you. <laughs> oh, man. So, so, you know, we, we, we avoided eye contact and it, it, it just, it's something you overcome some fear and you figure out how to do it. And, you know, it's, it's not all that difficult once you kind of manage your own expectations and, and fears.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I
0: think so cool.
2: I think what we found was that, um, uh, you know, regardless of where you are, you know, your station in life or physically where you are located, everyone's connected to someone super valuable. Uh, so we tried to build tech that could uncover that for you. So without thinking you could be valuable to anybody, uh, just by clicking a button.
0: Right, right. Exactly.
2: So Nick, uh, we're we're pushing uh,
0: forty some odd minutes on this call now. So, what other things uh, have I not asked you, or we haven't talked about that that you'd like to to talk about?
2: Um, I, I think we've we've spanned most of my universe, uh, all the way down to sailing in Rhode Island. Uh, yeah, I think this has been pretty comprehensive.
0: Well, excellent, excellent. I uh, uh, then I think we'll we'll call it a wrap. I will put. Uh, Pinchforth and uh, Briesler uh, into the show notes so people can uh, find that and uh, thank you very much Nick for taking the time uh, to, uh, to spend with me uh, discussing your background uh, I really appreciate it and uh, you've been a wonderful guest for the podcast thank you
2: yeah I hope, hope it's interesting thank you so much for taking the time I'm excited to, to be involved with you
0: thanks again Nick thanks see ya
1: Bela, you are right. Great interview with Nick Petros. What were your thoughts?
0: So I had a couple. Uh, You know, I thought that uh, he had a lot of varied experience, right? So this diversity of experience, which I think is uh, an important element of uh, being a successful entrepreneur, because you oftentimes have to pull together various different aspects from different industries and different types of skill sets in order to build a successful business. Uh, The other thing that caught my eye was when he talked about the uh, robotics Lego project uh, that he did in elementary school. And he said that was really a transformational experience for him where it really opened his eyes uh, into uh, what's possible and the types of things that he could achieve along with his teammates um, on because it was sort of a team project. And I I thought it was interesting the way he sort of took that learning experience and that transformational experience, and then turned it into uh, his entrepreneurial endeavors.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I was in school, we didn't have these robotics Legos thing. I mean, we had like cardboard and the fat pencils and the the scissors with the rounded edges, so we didn't hurt ourselves. Um, But yeah, it's really cool what what kids have access to now. It's been it's been amazing. I've some nieces and nephews and godchildren and things like that. And the things that they are exposed to now um, is, is really amazing. So I, I love how these little threads um, from when you're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old impact you, in you know his case, when he's whatever, in his late 20s, early 30s, and in our case, when we have big numbers in front of our, our, our age. But, um, but it's cool. So, yeah, these things, these things work. I loved how he talked about validation as a really important key Um, He learned the validation lesson the hard way when he was an entrepreneur um, and how hard it is when he was talking about his um, electric car idea and just not having the ability to validate what sounded like a really cool concept. Um, And now now he helps people um, develop validation plans and get to this idea of minimum viable product, which we've talked about before in a podcast on on Lean Startup, um, that these are really important aspects of the entrepreneurial process. And they are the drivers that get you to funding. right? An idea is great, but a validated idea with a prototype um, are the things that really get people to think, yeah, I'll buy into this. So I like that a lot of what he does is centered around this idea of validation and viability, and then you connect with the sources of capital. And to me, that's the um, one of the keys uh, to being successful in this space. What do you think, Baylor?
0: Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. So if I put on my venture capitalist hat, You know, uh, investing, uh, whether you're a seed stage venture capitalist or an angel investor, whatever space you play in, uh, is all about managing your risk. And what validation really does is it helps to reduce the risk for the investor. Because you are now presenting more proof, if you will, that your idea or concept, number one, works. And number two, uh, there's some customer interest for it. Uh, And those things all sort of reduce risk for the investor. And the the more that you can reduce risk for an an investor, the more likely they are to invest and oftentimes at a higher valuation. So both of those things are are to your advantage for sure. The other thing that struck me in our conversation was this notion about how we we sort of sidetracked a little bit and talked about sailing, um, but we did have this conversation about how Sailing or oftentimes other competitive sports, not just sailing, uh, you know, where where you have to do things as a team. Uh, sometimes you do things as an individual. And at least in sailing, you know, you're trying to get from point A to point B. You have limited resources. Uh, you have to deal with the unexpected. Uh, you got to do some planning. So it has a sort of a lot of uh, business al- analogies. And one of the questions I have to our listeners is, you know, if they had some thoughts on sort of how uh, sports or, or you know, competitive nature of those types of activities, whether they be individual or a team, have helped them in their careers, uh, how, have they drawn upon those activities um, and have built on them as as their careers have developed?
1: Well, Bela, have I told you about my sailing experiences? Uh, no, no. No. So I've been on three sailing trips. The first sailing trip I went on with my best friend, Doug, and Doug will swear this, he he will validate this. Uh, We are on his uncle's boat, and his uncle just got this uh, unsinkable dinghy that, you know, you tow behind the sailboat when you're, right? So we take it out, maiden voyage, right, unsinkable dinghy. We, uh, we loaded up with dinner. We, we dropped the anchor, and we were going to go to this little island and, and have a little barbecue to, uh, for dinner. So we load on the little grill and the hot dogs and the marshmallows and whatever, right? Guess who sunk the unsinkable dinghy? <laughs> yep. Mike Wasserman. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that was the first sailing trip. The second sailing trip, many years later, okay, because, I, you know, this was traumatizing for me, right? Um, second sailing trip. We're in New Zealand and we're sailing uh, on the around on the Tasman Sea. It's beautiful, right? So our friends, my friend Dan, is a very experienced sailor, and he's sailing the boat. And he's like, "Okay, Mike, I got to go adjust something up front. Just hold the hold this, right?" So I'm holding the tiller, right? And we hit a point that. On reflection, the person at the sailboat rental place kind of told us about this, but we weren't really paying attention. Where you come around a point and the wind shifts really quickly, that's right when he decided to go up front, (laughs) and I broke the boat. Okay? So that was time number two. Okay? Um, So, yeah, sailing is not in my competency set.
0: Uh, Okay. Note to self, Bela, do not invite Mike to go sailing.
1: Yep. like to be honest about that. (laughs) But <laughs> we'll if, just stick to if, if the readers have their own personal stories of success and, you know, that's a lot more uplifting than my ridiculous stories. So we yeah. do I, – I, sorry, I ruined your whole shtick, didn't I? But it's okay. No, not at all. I think, I think it was great. Let's change the name of the podcast from The Unconventional <laughs> Path, to The Unsinkable Dinghy. That could be season two.
0: <laughs> that could be season two. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be a big hit. Yeah. Hey, one other quick thing about Nick, uh, just to get back to the podcast or, the, or our guest – that struck me, was I think he talked about a really important thing that he does with, with the f- companies he works with. And he said he helps them figure out what their key metrics are. You know, often you, when you measure something, you react to it and, and you, you, you build around it. And if you're measuring the wrong thing, you're often uh, not really improving your business. So this notion of figuring out for your business um, the sector that you're in what are the key metrics that matter to you and to your customer? And then having a laser-like focus on measuring those and tracking them and uh, making sure um, that, that they remain uh, pertinent to your business and to your customers because sometimes these metrics change. I mean, he gave that example of how in the early days of the Internet, it used to be eyeballs, right? Number of number of users. That's anything. That's all that people cared about. And it drove huge valuations and investments. And then soon people figured out, well, it really doesn't mean all that much. It's not the eyeballs. It's the engagement of those eyeballs. And we start figuring out ways of measuring that engagement and that level of engagement. So I thought that was a really good takeaway from, from Nick's comments as and well. And
1: We can tie that to another, a, a recent podcast with Garrett Howardson, who said, okay, one of the, another key is asking the right questions. So once you figure out the right questions to ask, then you add what Nick said, how are you going to measure that, right? What are your key measures and your key benchmarks going to be? Now you start to get the whole picture. So asking the right questions from, from Garrett Howardson to measuring, getting the right metrics in place from Nick Petros. I, I like this as a, um, a, a nice kind of overarching philosophy of being a successful entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, well said, Mike. Um... And I think, you know, with that, why don't we wrap it up? What do you think?
1: I think we should wrap it up. All right. I can wrap it up. You got it. Okay. We're happy that you joined us today in our podcasting adventure uh, and learned about my sinking of the unsinkable dinghy. Uh, We hope that you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking or at least not annoying. Uh, We have two small requests as usual. First, if you have questions about what we discussed, as we mentioned earlier, please get in, in touch with us. Um, our email is, as I said six times already, bayla.ann.mike at gmail.com. And second, more importantly, if you like what we're doing, do us a favor and hit like or subscribe on your podcast app. It's free uh, to do this. It takes a second of your time. And if you really want to be radical and write a quick review for us, we'd really appreciate it. Um, if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them.
0: Hey, so thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, we really appreciate you listening to our podcast. And we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. We, in, we have these episodes come out once a week. And uh, so hope, you, hope you're with us next week as well. So signing off from upstate New York, this is Bela.
1: Thanks, Bela. This is great. And from over here in Münster, Germany, I'm going to go get me a schnitzel, I think. All right. So have a great week and I'll uh, see you in a few days.
0: This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at BusyMedia.co.